1: I'm LaToya Johnson, your host for the New Books Network, and I'm here with Dr. Livia Arndahl-Woods, author of Pregnancy in the Victorian Novel, which traces the connections between literary narratives around pregnancy and childbirth in the 19th century. Woods considers instances of pregnancy in literature that are tied to representations of immodesty, poverty, and medical diagnosis that has led to the criminalization of women for pregnancy outcomes in 21st century America. Woods is an associate professor of English at the University of Illinois at Springfield. Hello, Livia. Thank you so much for being here with me this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, so we are here to talk about pregnancy in the Victorian novel, which... Oh, that's a beautiful cover, by the way. I wanted to. I talk- love the
0: cover. I love oh. the cover so much. Alexa Love at OSUP, you were contracted by OSUP, did that cover and she did an amazing job.
1: Oh, yes, she did. Let's shout her out. This is so beautiful. Um, when and how did pregnancy's um, representation as a bodily experience in this particular genre of fiction come to you?
0: Yeah, well, I. Um, had been interested in pregnancy when I was an undergrad, actually, that was kind of the closest thing I did to a senior thesis was a year long project on American cultures of pregnancy and childbirth. Um, and I was simultaneously in my Victorian lit class that year, I was working on a project about women's anger. <laughs> so in hindsight, um, it was always there. Um by the time I did my master's degree um I knew that that was an interest that that, that those two things belong together um and I wrote a master's thesis not not on this topic, but that sort of like circles the edges of of these ideas and I didn't know for sure that that's what I would write my dissertation about um but pretty quickly i I did start to put those pieces together. And I was at the CUNY Graduate Center um, working with Talia Schaffer among other people. And she was somebody who was really uh, able to help me. Talia has a special gift where she she can repeat your ideas back to you more clearly and more beautifully than you ever knew they were there. Um, And I was the beneficiary of that special gift. Um, And so she helped me to understand what this, what that this was my project. Um, And, but I assumed when I started looking at this topic, I, I, you know, I was collecting my reading for my oral examinations and I was just looking and looking and looking for the books because I was like, well, there's certainly there, there are books on this topic because Victorian studies is a field that has been so strongly influenced by feminism and feminist theory and criticism. And fe- feminists have been asking these questions about like, what is the fundamental, in what way is pregnancy a-, a problematic idea for our sort of epistemologies of the self since the 1970s? And so I just assumed that the, that the book was there. Um, I did find little snippets, of course. Um, there was an article by Christina Northcutt Malone from the early aughts, maybe the late nineties that was directly on the topic. Um, and there's a book by Claire Hansen that's a little bit more of like a cultural history, but that, and that deals with a much broader period, but there was just no deep dive into pregnancy in the Victorian period and in Victorian literature, which I was so, so surprised by. And also, uh, Lucky because that I I saw my path, um, and so that's kind of how the how the project a little bit about how the project
1: started. Oh, wow! So while it, examining pregnancy in pregnancy in the Victoria novel, you focus on specific fiction narratives. How did you decide on the work you would analyze?
0: so there's just one of the
1: reasons that there's not
0: already a book about pregnancy in the victorian novel is that there isn't a whole lot of pregnancy in the victorian novel there are babies get born a lot um women die um and though that pregnancy figures in those plots is you can figure out that there's pregnancy there, but very seldom are characters directly depicted as being pregnant. And when they are directly depicted as being pregnant, they're de- usually that's articulated in euphemism, which I don't think for what it's worth, there's been some discussion among scholars of Victorian pregnancy recently about the the work that euphemism, the real work that euphemism can do in communicating a a state like pregnancy, like it's not as though when you use a euphemism, when you say, I've got a bun in the oven, nobody understands what you mean. Like you are in fact communicating that you're pregnant when you say that. Um, But there isn't, pregnancy isn't treated as a state that that you you would spend narrative time on, like the pregnancy itself. Um, And so there just isn't a lot of it. So one answer to the question of how I chose what to read was uh, I found all the pregnancies, (laughs) not all of the pregnancies. I do not read all Victorian novelistic depictions of pregnancy in this book, Um, but I found uh, most of them. Um, There are some key ones that I don't treat. Well, there's an explosion of visible pregnancy in at the fantasy at the end of the 19th century. Um, And that, as you can see from that chapter, which is chapter four in the book, um, that's the most jam packed with readings because I just couldn't contain myself. But even that is only, that's only really a sliver of what's available in that period. So that chapter could have dealt with any number of like 20 20 different options. Um, But for the most part, the other chapters are dealing with like the available legible pregnancies. and there are a few that i don't that i don't read but most of them i do because it's just not um a huge aspect of what victorian fiction especially realist fiction was interested
1: in and you begin chapter one um Well, not chapter one, the introduction of the book, I misspoke. The the introduction of the book is titled Somatic Reading. And given the nature of the thesis of the book, given that it's about pregnancy and the act of growing another human inside of you, it makes sense. But can, um, can you explain a little bit of the concept and its association with the premise of the book? and why you decided to start the book with that particular concept.
0: Yeah, so uh, to answer this question, I wanna like go back to the sort of like history of the project piece of it. Um, the, the, The realization that my project was really as much about somatic reading as it was about pregnancy in the Victorian novel came at the very end of writing the dissertation, which is like a classic moment where you've been working on this thing for like five years, and you realize, oh crap! Now I know what it's about. Um, I realized by the time I, I had finished drafting my dissertation, I knew that somatic reading, which is which is the key intervention of my book, like the key intervention of the book is not is not to notice these pregnancies that they are there. Um, the key intervention of the book is to say, like, hey, uh, we need a little bit more room to talk about what what bodies do and what bodies know in scholarship. Um, And so that had, that had, I had realized that that was there, but the, the bulk of the change, the revision from the dissertation iteration of this project into the book, which is actually like for a long time, I thought that they would be very similar and in some ways they are, but it's a really different project. Um, And that, that project came out of the work that I did to, clarify my theorization of somatic reading and that was happening alongside um, my own embodied experiences of of pregnancy um, and also just like a really uh, intense period in in the world Um, and so uh, precarity is like the it, it i had intense embodied experiences of precarity during the period of revision from a dissertation that was about pregnancy in the victorian novel with some interest in somatic reading to a book that's really um that has somatic reading as its key intervention but perhaps that didn't really speak to your question about like what somatic reading really
1: is. Which <laughs> shall I do that? <laughs> oh, that would be great. But yes, talk to your heart's content because I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> okay. This is a very interesting topic, and your book thesis is incredibly interesting. So please, yes, expound.
0: <laughs> so I think that um, somatic reading is not. It's not a. I'm really interested in the tradition or the the contemporary conversation in um uh, literary scholarship in general it happens to be strong in my field and sort of 19th century critical circles about the distinctions between what's what what we might call strong theory and what we might call weak theory so strong theory well I, I i think that in i i don't want to step on any toes in describing it because i don't mean it denigratively but strong theory is a theory that you could apply in many perhaps all situations and have it make sense um or that is more that, that you believe to be often true or often helpful and weak theory is um different than that uh it's i mean i the language that i like to think about it because i'm a victorianist the the language that i like to use to think about it is the language of modesty like I, and i don't mean modesty in the sense of like covering up your bits um i mean modesty in the sense of think of holding and holding an awareness of everything you don't know with you all the time um and so somatic reading is is a, it's a weak method it's and I don't mean that as a negative I mean that's a positive there I'm not saying we should be doing it all the time um I'm not saying that all readings need somatic reading to to function or make sense or do better um but certainly when we look at something like pregnancy in the Victorian novel uh we I think I do a much better job of interpreting what's going on when i draw on not only my own embodied experience because again i drafted this entire project before i had ever experienced pregnancy so i don't think it requires that it doesn't require it doesn't require personal affiliation with maternity it doesn't require personal physical experience but it requires that your antenna be up and sort of registering that people have bodies and that the way that we know about the world is shaped by the fact that we have a body and that if we can't talk about that when we're using our scholarly voices, then our scholarly voices are the poorer for it. Um, And so, so that's, that's kind of what somatic reading is, is getting at. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In in chapter one, you discuss the moralizing gaze the reader experiences when reading pregnancy in several of the novels indicated in the book. What is the moralizing gaze and its connection to birthing women in Victorian fiction?
0: A lot of what I was doing was just trying to pin down the pregnancies. Because like I said, you know they're there, but they're not quite there. And and even when they are more there, they're not there in the way that we often think about pregnancy in the 21st century. So um, clear. So, for example, the key in the, for much of the early 19th century and, and through to the middle of the 19th century, the key moments in a pregnancy was quickening, which is when you start to feel a fetus moving. And that, that's fascinating for so many reasons as like the key moment in a pregnancy, especially when we compare it to something like a positive pregnancy test that you take at home as a key moment in pregnancy, or an ultrasound that confirms that the embryo is developing a heartbeat as a key moment in a pregnancy, or even something like a 20-week 20, 20 scan, anatomy scan. These are all in contemporary medical experiences of pregnancy in 21st century america these are all key moments that you might think of as your mind is playing like the m- montage of a pregnancy right and in for a lot of the victorian period and or for a lot of the 19th century and some of the victorian period that key moment was instead quickening which as many people know uh, happens really, at really widely different points in a pregnancy. Like it can happen anywhere from say 14 weeks to say 24 weeks, even a little bit later, especially if people's placentas are, are are in the front. Um, so that it's so much more idiosyncratic. It's so much more, um, variable and it doesn't map directly onto sort of like our structures of thinking about what, pregnancy is. Um, and so if we think so so a lot of what I was doing when I was reading these books was just sort of trying to find like where are we in the pregnancy. And that was important for many reasons to me. Um, partly just to be able to say like, hey, we have this idea of pregnancy as not really being something the Victorian novel um, delves into but like it's here it's simmering just under the surface so a let's look at that and b it was important to me because very quickly um, it became clear and I mean that insofar as there is scholarship on this uh, was scholarship on this topic when I started this project the scholarship helped me to see that when pregnancy is depicted in Victorian fiction it is depicted um, as part of a moral um Approach to women's reproductive capacity. So when you see pregnancy depicted as an embodied experience in Victorian fiction, most likely the maternal figure has transgressed norms, social norms in some way. And the visibility, the sort of revelation of her pregnant body is a kind of narrative punishment. So, so what I was doing was sort of trying to trying to track how these things were playing out. And in doing that, I felt like I was just sort of clawing at women's guilt or care that the guilt of female characters, you know, sort of like, so when exactly did she have sex? So when, so how exactly pregnant is she when she does this thing, like riding on horseback that she's not supposed to do, like, how bad is she being? Um, and I didn't, that wasn't a place I wanted to be coming from, but I felt like I got sort of caught up in the structure, the narrative structure of blame um, and moralization around bodies in ways that I didn't want to be caught up in it. Um, so I felt this sort of like ethical tension in the, that in wanting to look at bodies, um, generously, just by looking, I, I found myself not uh, with few options for, uh, generosity of spirit. Um, and so that chapter is, is an attempt to sort of like pin down the way that that acts in a reader like the way that those narrative structures can function as in in the sort of experience of reading and then a, an effort to sort of signal that there are moments especially when we really just sit with the body um, there are moments where we can escape that um, and there are moments where we can keep in mind that bodies function outside of morality um, and that and that pregnancy isn't a punishment um, and that illness isn't a punishment that you deserve and that death isn't a punishment that you deserve. Um, And that that the body offers us a way of accessing that.
1: Livia, you graciously tell your story of pregnancy and birthing in the interlude section of the book. And I just wanna thank you for sharing that with us and you say the experiences often felt like the echoes of your scholarship. Um, Would you be willing to expound on that a bit?
0: Yeah, so the fourth chapter of my book um, is called Impressions, and it's it's about what happens with literary depictions of pregnancy at the end of the 19th century. And like I said, they kind of exploded for obvious reasons that I can kind of get into more, but for now, let's just sort of leave it there. Um, but the the I said I had a hard time choosing which there there were enough options in that late period of liter direct literary depictions of pregnancy that it was hard to narrow it down to like which ones I would treat and I ended up deciding to focus on um, the representations that seem to call up or directly name the idea of maternal impression, which is this um theory of the and reproduction that, that believes that what happens, I mean, we, that believes that what happens to a pregnant person when they are pregnant might directly shape the fetus and then the baby and thereby the future. So we find ideas about maternal impression all over cultures of reproduction, all over the world, all over history. This isn't like specific to the Victorian period. And in fact, in the Victorian period, there was a lot of like Uh, there was some scientific move away from stronger investments in that, in that theory, which, which had been prevalent through the, through the 18th century. Um, But what I noticed in sort of looking at these treatments of pregnancy, where it seemed like maternal impression was at play or directly there or potentially there was that actually the, the, the concern seems to be paternal impression the sort of as at the end of the 19th century as the direct guilty link between the sexual body and women's guilt starts to loosen which is a moment of like possibility radical possibility like potential freedom um it it just sort of disperses into the ether and the fears and the moralization and the desire to control and the inability to control all remain. And so it's like, it just sort of scatter shots and lands other places. And so one of the places it lands is the sort of like, I, the, the, on the idea that the real driving force in the development of the fetus, the baby, the future, isn't the mother, but the father. Um, and that that's horrifying. Um, and it's horri- and like, it, you know, we, we could really get into that. But what I, what I thought about in thinking about that chapter so much was the sort of way, that, that idea of impression, right? The way that these scripts get written into the body, either we imagine them getting written into the body or they actually get written into the body or something in between and i had already worked through that though that idea of pregnancy when i Started to experience pregnancy myself, um, and my own experiences of pregnancy were challenging. Like my first um, pregnancy ended in the stillbirth, um, and then I had a miscarriage, and then I had a live birth, but it was incredibly complicated. And I had postpartum preeclampsia. Um, then I had another miscarriage, and then I had my last pregnancy, which was relatively smooth, except that I was literally going into the doctor's office like every three days for every possible medical test you could imagine, um, and so it was it was especially following the stillbirth. It was hard not to think that that my hyper awareness of these structures of guilt and punishment had written some story into my body that my body was enacting. and you know I obviously I don't believe that to be that's a that's a very weak theory. I do not believe that to be true. And also, it pointed me in the direction of being able to see, and this is to like return us to that interlude, which, you know, that interlude is a little bit, um, it's a little bit intentionally wild, loose. Uh, I'm I'm trying to draw connections between these things that are so far apart from each other, uh, things like e- conspiracy theories about Beyonce's deflating bump while she was pregnant, and you know, a sensation fiction of the 1860s. Uh, and I am not saying that there's a tight connection between those things, that we need to understand Beyonce to understand Wood's novel, or that we need to understand Wood's novel to understand, like, it, Meghan Markle. Like, I'm not, I'm not drawing a, a firm line there. I'm just saying that the way that in the, in the cultural impressions, the, the plots that we lay out or what can happen with our bodies play out over time and impress themselves on our actual lived bodies uh, is um, complicated and not not there.
1: Gosh, that, that, was, that was awesome. Thank you so much for ex- willing to expound on that, being willing to expound on that and, and giving a, a, a fascinating answer. Thank you. You also write, um, I cannot apply what I know about moralization, pregnancy, and loss in the 21st century of America reproductive landscape without acknowledging violence extracted on Black bodies and the rise of extremist positions on the bodily autonomy of pregnant people. Can you talk about the connection between pregnancy in the novels that you analyzed and what birthing individuals ac- encounter now in contemporary America?
0: Yeah. So um, this was also like grappling with what this question is in my book was a big part of the final rounds of revision that I was doing. I mean, I was also doing those final rounds of revision last summer. Um, So (laughs) uh, it it was both incredibly pressing and also it felt impossible. And so something else that I say is, you know, I, and I think this is the, the, the very last paragraph of the book is this is, these themes are obviously like more than my book can bear. Like my book cannot speak in any, um, my my book can't speak in any really meaningful way to what, um, productive injustice in America looks like, but reproductive justice, injustice in America, what reproductive injustice in America looks like directly speaks to my book. So, I I can't I can't divorce those I, I feel I feel that I must not divorce those that those that those must be that those must live in the space together even though they live very uneasily. Um, in the Victorian novel, if you see pregnancy, you're seeing somebody's guilt, probably the mother's. So the narrative structure. For being able to think about it at all is a structure in which someone has already always done something wrong. Um, and I think that that really informs that's not, again, that's not particular to the Victorian period. Like we find ways that different cultures do this in, in many different periods. And it's not even a Victorian innovation per se. Per se. But some things that are victorian innovations that we have to place into uneasy conversation with this are ideas about racial hierarchy, for example, um, ideas about class hierarchy, ideas about actual physical n- notions of inherent physical difference that make some people more guilty than others and um, so the legacies of Victorian novelistic plots for pregnancy are very with us in ways that feel like they need to be said. Um, And then I think, in terms of if pregnancy is something that the Victorian novel really struggles to articulate, abortion is impossible for the uh, Victorian novel to articulate. The Victorian novel cannot speak abortion. Um, there's been some work on this. Doreen uh has a very interesting article about uh, reading Rosamond's pregnancy loss in Middle March, which I also read in Chapter Three of my book um, as a narrative of abortion. Um, and um, and we know we have some historical data, uh, like we know that Victorians, just like Victorians, were having a lot of babies. Um, they were they were sometimes having abortions, um, but you can't find it. So no amount of like looking for the secret plots of abortion is gonna get me a whole book's worth of material. <laughs> um, but I think the most interesting place to kind of like look for this, these themes playing out in my book are uh, in again in the fourth chapter. I didn't realize I would I would talk to you and talk so much about the fourth chapter. Um, but the final the final reading is a is a reading of a novel called Anna Lombard by by Victoria Cross, in which I I'm so tempted to just recount the plot to you because it's such a it's such a sense like it's 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 shocking. I literally gasped out loud as I was reading it. Um, but basically the plot is that. A white British woman finds herself living in colonial India. She is um, uh, unbelievably sexually attracted to a man, an Indian man who she marries in a, in a Muslim marriage ceremony. Um, And she just can't stop herself from secretly having sex every night with him in her room. Um, But she actually doesn't want to be doing it. uh, She says and she really wants to marry this uh white british guy who like knows about all of this and they remain engaged and then anna and the husband get sick and he dies and she survives and the uh, gerald the white british guy and anna are so happy because now they're finally free of this like uh burden on her or and i heavy scare quotes on that um for for the audio um and And then they realize that she's pregnant um, and so they get married anyway to protect her name, uh, her reputation, and she carries the pregnancy to term, and the whole time it's narrated in great detail, really significant amount of detail for the narration of that pregnancy as an embodied experience as a painful, uncomfortable, unwanted body bodily experience and then she has the baby and she feels the exact same way about the baby that she felt about the dead husband, which is that she is passionately maternally in love with the baby, not sexually, but, you know, she passionately physically wants to care for the baby. And so her husband, Gerald says to her, like, this is a problem for me. Like, I can't believe you love this kid. We were, we were going to like just give it away what's going on. So she like gets real sad and thinks about it for a week. And then The happy resolution of the novel is that she murders the child. So because it's because the child is mixed race. I wasn't going to recount the plot, and then I did because because I feel like you can't you can't understand without that plot. So that plot is shocking. Uh, First of all, Victorian readers, late late Victorian readers, were shocked by this. But what they were shocked by was the open sexuality. They didn't talk about being shocked by the infanticide, which is itself shocking. Um, But what I want to say about this book is that this book in 1901, it can imagine a happy ending on the basis of racist infanticide, but it cannot imagine abortion. So I think that's the whole story right there.
1: Pregnancy in the Victorian novel is the first book of its kind. And so as you were creating this work, what did you ultimately desire for readers students or lovers of the Victorian novel what did you want for us to take away from the book
0: i mean i i think i want everyone who reads <laughs> not just victorian fiction and so right. i mean part of part of from for me, part of the story of this book or just of like my own scholarship is that I started teaching full-time when I started my PhD program. So like my research has never existed outside of the context of full-time teaching and full-time teaching is an embodied experience. Like even now when I so often do it exclusively online, it's still a really embodied experience. Um, But certainly like teaching in the classroom is an embodied experience. Um. And with people who think there are all sorts of wrong ways to read, to respond, to experience reading. Um, and I don't think there are wrong ways to experience reading. Um, and I think experiences of reading that are like, I hate this. Um, this was so hard to get through that I like picked the skin off my face off the my fingernail beds in frustration, or like I wasn't able to get through this, um, or this made me enraged, or the other end of the spectrum of like, I think we're more comfortable in English classrooms with like, I just love this, I just love reading, um, and the sort of like passion of reading. Um, but the way that like we obviously have to ask follow up questions, then the next step is like so what what why? where, how, um, and to start to start to ask those follow-up questions that the body is one way we can ask them. Um, What's the physical experience of reading? If you love this, if love is the word that comes to mind, like, what does that mean to you? Um, And probably for most people, the answer about like what love means to you, at least partly lives in the body. Um, and we don't have, we just don't have a lot of frameworks for like having those conversations be okay in our classrooms. We don't have a lot of frameworks for having those conversations be okay in, in our um, in our scholarship. Uh, you know, in in a, at a, going to an academic conference, um, and it's not. I think sometimes I'm not saying let's all just sit around and talk about how we feel. I'm saying let's look at how we feel as though that's an interesting part of the reading. So that's, I guess that's why I had to to work around there to get an answer to your question. How reading feels is in and of itself a place where we can focus our analysis. Um, and I'm not alone in that. Like that, you, you know, you talk about this book being the first of its kind insofar as it treats pregnancy in the Victorian novel. But I'm not the first um, Victorianist scholar or scholar period to say like it's interesting how reading feels is interesting, and that's been a particularly strong conversation in, in Victorian studies in in the last decade plus. Um, the question of like the feeling of reading has been um, in, of interest to many other people, and uh, I just want to real. What I want to do is invite the body to that conversation. Um, the physical feeling of reading, not just as it's depicted, but as we do it. Thank you so
1: much, Livia, for, for joining me this morning to talk about pregnancy in the Victorian novel. The book is out now. Go read.
0: Yay. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Thank you so much, LaToya.